Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31 to chapter 13, verse 13. But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Here we've heard it again for the sixth time in a row. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which is known as the love chapter in the Bible. One of the most well-known passages in the whole Bible. And what timing. I didn't plan it when I was thinking about this series, but today is Valentine's Day. And today we conclude our series on this love chapter. Um, St. Valentine was a real person. I don't know if you know a little bit of his history, but he lived a long time ago, way back in the third century. And there's historical evidence about St. Valentine that he was imprisoned for performing Christian marriages uh, uh, illegally for preaching the gospel by the emperor of Rome, Claudius at the time. So it's believed that at the night before his execution, that he actually healed the jailer's daughter who was imprisoning him. And he left behind a note. We're not quite sure what kind of note it was, but at the bottom of the note, it was signed, your Valentine. So that's the, uh, the, the, the real story behind Valentine's Day, as far as we can tell from history. And St. Valentine became, listen to this, the patron saint. He is the patron saint of beekeepers, of all things, engaged couples, fainting, greetings, happy marriages, love, lovers, plague, travelers, and young people. I didn't realize that until a few days ago, the saint of plague and love. Um, that's the saint we need right now. So happy Valentine's Day to all of you. I did go Valentine's uh, card shopping this week, and I did see a card that was based on 1 Corinthians 13. 
Now, the title of my sermon for today, the final in this series, is Love is Never Ending. And we could probably picture that, see that on the front of a Valentine's card. Uh, it would be good. But as we've seen the past five weeks, that 1 Corinthians 13 was not written to be a Valentine's Day kind of card or message. It wasn't written to give us these warm feelings about love or mushy sentimentality. It was actually written by the Apostle Paul to a church as a sharp correction, to call out a church that was immature because of conflict and disagreement and confusion and selfishness. That's why he wrote this chapter. And here in verses 7 through 13, is his final rebuke to this church, where he says, essentially, your love has stopped. You drop love in favor of all these other things that you think are the things that will get you through your conflicts, the things that will make you a more mature person and community. But here at the end, as Paul is saying this rebuke, it becomes more than a rebuke. Uh, this is really Paul's final case for love. He lays this out in a kind of argument that uses logic, and I want to show you some of that, and beauty. So it is the final case for love to convict us and compel us. So let's look at this, and I encourage you to have the passage open in front of you. I'm really just going to walk through from beginning to end. Yeah, the context, as we've seen in verses 4 and 5, Paul tells us there what love is, patient and kind, what love is not, arrogant, boasting, rude. And then in verse 6, he tells us what love rejoices in. Love's partner is the truth. And now in verse 7, he tells us here, if you look at this, what genuine love does. He says love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. I really appreciated how one commentator, Anthony Thistleton, paraphrased this. Well, what is Paul saying? He's saying, essentially, there is nothing that love cannot face. Love never tires of support. It bears anything for the sake of the beloved. It never loses faith. faith. It never exhausts hope. It never gives up. I think the best way to think about verse 7 here. The way to interpret it, it's kind of like a meaning sandwich, the official uh, term for this. In biblical studies, is a chiasm. You've got the, the, the bun and you've got the meat in the middle. And so first and last, Paul says it bears and endures, that love always supports and bears up in any circumstance and no matter how long it takes. So whatever it is, it bears. No matter how long it takes, love continues. And then in the middle, you've got the meat, faith, and hope. This is not faith and hope in what we can do for another person. This is not speaking about faith and hope even in what that other person can do. This is speaking about the kind of love that holds on to faith and hope in what God can do for anyone in any circumstances and what he promises to do for all those who look to him. So this isn't speaking about some kind of naivete or gullibility that just believes and hopes all things and doesn't see issues. No, it sees those issues clearly. Love is not blind, as G.K. Chesterton said. Love is bound, and as you're bound to the other person, this kind of love has faith and hope because of what God is able to do. 
in their life. Love is convinced there are no hopeless cases or situations. Not if God is a God of resurrection. That's what this meat in the sandwich is talking about. Uh, Leon Morris, another commentator, said, Love like this is a refusal to take failure as final. It's the confidence that looks to ultimate triumph by the grace of God. Verse 8. It really completes the thought, and then it looks ahead to the argument. Verse 8a says, Love never ends. Literally, the word there means it never falls down. It keeps going and going. The form of the word never there, it's a unique word. Paul doesn't use it anywhere else. It's very strong. It's the strongest word he could have used. Never at all, it means. Not even at any time. Love, genuine love, real love is never ending. It's a commitment to another's good, expecting nothing in return, and it never ends. <laughs> so here's my first point. <laughs> what Paul says here about love, it clearly assumes something about love, and that is, it is hard work. It will be hard in trying to love others. There will be things to bear, right? It will often feel so hard and so heavy to bear and support those who need our love. At times, it'll feel like it's too much to bear. There will be things that happen in our relationships that cause us to doubt. Whether it's worth the effort, there will be a struggle to believe the best about and for other people. There will be times when we feel like we are losing hope, that it can't get any better, and it can only get worse. Times when it feels like we have given all that we have to give and there's nothing left and it feels like we're empty and we've reached the end of our love. But Paul says love, genuine love, continues through it all. So here's the first application of this. Uh, here on Valentine's Day, we have to say this. This passage doesn't allow us to romanticize love or sentimentalize love. No, it's just the opposite. 1 Corinthians 13, it really dashes and it really destroys any sentimental or vague, fuzzy notion of love. And the sooner the better that that happens for us. Because it is hard to love. It will hurt. It will disappoint. It will drain us in all things to have an attitude that says, I have this attitude and this affection towards another person that leads to my actions that regard them as more important than even myself, that puts their welfare and their needs above my own. Is anything harder than that to do that in all things? And I think it's really important for us to hear this with all that we have gone through, with all that we continue to go through, a pandemic, so much turmoil around us, being with others more than ever, in close quarters or being apart from others more than other more than ever we are bearing so much ourselves and so we are needy and we are tired and the strain and the stress on our relationships has been great 2020 and into 2021 it's been hard is your love tank low does it feel like it's empty there are some days that I've had throughout this whole time and have had recently, where at the end of the day, it feels like I've given all I have to give and I, all I can do is just lay down and go to sleep. 
and get up the next day. To love is hard work. Paul is acknowledging it's the way it's supposed to be. It's hard. It's a sign that it is real. I shared this uh, quote, at least a portion of this quote, earlier on in the series, but I couldn't think of any better way to describe the choice that we have when it comes to the hard work of love than sharing again this quote from C.S. Lewis. So we'll put that up on the screen. C.S. Lewis, in his book on love, uh, The Four Loves, he said, I'm going to turn my screen so I can see this a little bit better, to love it all is to be vulnerable. To love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to keep your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and all entanglements. Lock it up in a casket in a coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love it all is to be broken. C.S. Lewis is saying there, here's a choice for us. Do the hard work of love. It will hurt. It will cost us a lot. Or choose a heart that is hardened by avoiding the hurt and the hard work of love, which will cost us even more in the end. So here's a question. How do we keep going when it is so hard, when we feel drained? How do we not stop loving the way we are called to love and we feel like nothing's left? Here's where the argument begins in verse 8, the second half of verse 8. Here's how it summarizes the main point Paul is making here. He's making a case for love as the most holy work that we can do. Love is the most holy work of all. Love, compared to anything and everything else we can do in life, is what makes a lasting impact, is what makes a difference. It's the thing that has the greatest power. Because love is where the very energy and the life of God flows into the heart and the life of another person. So it is the most holy work we can do for another person, and it is the most holy work that God can do in us. I want to look at those two things here in this text. Love is the most holy work, Paul is arguing, that we can do for another person, verses 8 to 10. Here's Paul's argument. Okay, he says love never ends, it never stops. But Corinthians, he's talking to them, all the things that you're most excited about and focused on and spending all your energy on, tongues and prophecies and knowledge, right? He says, they have their place, but they will cease. They are at their best, only partial, only temporary. But when the perfect comes, the partial, he says, will come to an end. Perfect there, he means the goal, the end, the destiny. It's the Greek word teleon. It's the end and the goal. When we get to the end and the goal, heaven and the new creation, none of these things that you are most focused on will carry on. But love will. Love never ends. For the Corinthian church, for them it was the miraculous, the exciting, and knowledge and prophecy. If we could just know it all, if we could just do these wonderful acts of miraculous and exciting things, then we will grow up. Then 
will have the power to make a difference. So these were the things they were most excited about before they came, be, even became Christians. <laughs> these were the things that Corinthian culture was most excited about, miracles and knowledge. Paul is saying your Christian faith has not yet reached your thinking about what is most powerful, what is greatest, and what should, what should earn and have your greatest focus. What about us? We could put a lot of things in here, but we're similar to Corinthian culture, but we have our own unique things that get us excited, that we think have the great power, that we think will make the difference. It could be politics. It could be earthly power. It could be education or money or influence. But Paul is saying to us, love is the most holy work. It's the most powerful work that we can do for another person. Think about it like this. If you have one person in your life who bears all things for you, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and never stops, you can face anything in life. Everything else in your life can falter. There can be struggles all around, but you can make it through if you have that one person in your life like that. But if you flip it around, if you have everything in life, wealth and success and fame and education and intelligence and good looks and earthly power, all the exciting stuff, you name it. But if you don't have anyone who's there to bear with you, believe in you, hope for you, and endure alongside you, then none of that other stuff will make you happy. You will be deeply empty. And if any of those other things start to falter and fade, you will crumble. See what Paul is saying? If you love someone like this, you bring a holy and eternal power into their life. So you need to refocus. You need to refocus your thinking, not on the fading and the lesser, when you can have the greater and the lasting now to keep on loving another person, to bear, endure, believe, and hope. That is the most holy and powerful work. Now let's look at verse 11 the next point in the argument. Paul basically says here, as he talks about what is childish and what is a true adulthood, he's saying here, love is the mark of maturity, right? Love then is the most holy work that God is doing in us to grow us up, to make us mature. Growing in love, Paul essentially says here, is real Christian maturity. All the other stuff, all the exciting stuff, the miracles, the knowledge, the prophecy, it may or may not be evidence of maturity. Paul said that in verses 1 through 3 as well, and he's coming back to that. The only way to know if those things are evidence of true spiritual maturity is if there is love, love like this. Early in the letter, in, in Corinthians, earlier on, he said in verse uh or in chapter 3, he said, here's the problem going on with you guys. You are infants, he called them. Because of all the envy and conflict that I see going on, you're infants. I wanted to lead you to maturity, but I can't. Now, it's okay to start as an infant. We all start as infants and, and child and ch children. But Paul says here, you're, you're choosing to stay childish. Think of this illustration here that I think helps us get to the heart of what Paul's saying. Uh, when you have uh, little children and you talk to little children and you ask them, hey, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, when, when you are adulting, what do you want to be? And when 
our kids were little and a lot of little kids I've talked to, myself even, thinking back, say, I want to be a policeman. A lot of kids say that. Or firemen. They seem powerful and strong. Uh, I want to be anything that makes me rich and powerful, right? Um, one of our kids said, I want to invent something that no one's ever invented and, and it's going to make me rich. You know, I want to be a YouTube star, fame. I want to play in the pros, whatever it might be. But I've never heard a kid say, when I grow up, I want to be a mom or a dad that wakes up five times in the middle of the night to care for my crying child. You know, I've never heard a child say, I want to be able to go on a walk holding hands with my spouse after 50 years of marriage. You know, children naturally go to the exciting, the flashy, the powerful, the quick. I want to get rich quick. I want to be a star quick. But the things that take time, love's work, love's holy work, they say they're not into that. <laughs> That's not what they're drawn to. But Paul is saying here that, yes, children are drawn to the flashy, the dramatic, and the exciting. That's okay for kids. But spiritual adults know love is grown slowly over time, in everyday moments, in bearing and in supporting, in moving through conflicts and hard times, and making it through. The challenge, Paul says, is this. Immature Christians want everything to be exciting and fast and immediate. They love stories about immediate change, testimonies where it's like, here, my life before and after, and it only took a prayer. But mature Christians, Paul says, understand that patience and kindness, letting go of our self-seeking hearts, bearing and enduring with other people, that's the holy work of Jesus. So when we come up against times and moments when we're struggling to bear and believe and hope and endure, Paul says, these are your moments to grow up, to mature, to stop being a child. So the most holy and the most spiritual thing you can do for others, the most holy and spiritual way you can grow is love where you are, not in some imaginary set of circumstances, that isn't your life. No, in the real life, God has given to you. Your maturity, growing into your holy destiny, is found where God is doing his most holy work in you now. What does that look like? Well, it looks like a lot of things. It looks like changing diapers. It looks like helping with homework. It looks like carving out time to listen to another person. It looks like praying with and for others. It looks like making somebody breakfast or food. It looks like asking good questions and listening. It looks like saying, I'm sorry. It looks like coming back after conflict and trying again, round two, round three, however long it takes. It looks like doing the hard work of bearing those who bore you, your parents or your grandparents. This is the holy and powerful stuff. This is the main event. This is what will last into eternity when all the other stuff is forgotten. Love is hard work, but love is holy work. Paul is saying this is how we should logically think when we come to Jesus. This is the Christian logic. Now there's another step here in the argument. Verses 12 through 13. And this is here, one of those places in the Bible, I've been thinking about it all week, when I know later today in the afternoon or tomorrow when I think back, and I think about this sermon and say, 
Did I do it justice? I think there's no way I'll be able to say yes. I don't think I can come close to it. I will try. This is the beauty here that's meant to compel us to love. Verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read that. Here Paul says, For we now see in a reflection, as in a mirror, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love, Paul is saying, is heavenly work. And he wants to give us a glimpse of the beauty of the world of heaven and new creation to compel us to pursue love first. Here's how he does it. Verse 12, he says, Now we see all of this indirectly, like a mirror. Corinth actually was known for producing mirrors. They were bronze mirrors, polished bronze, and they actually were pretty good. But still, it was a dim reflection of the real thing. It was an indirect viewing of the real deal. Paul is saying then, Now we see like a mirror what in heaven we will see directly what we will see face to face the question is see what what will we see then that will keep us loving now here's what paul says he will see (laughs) we will see that love never ends because it can't because it's impossible we will finally see this directly because love is at the very heart of god of who he is, his being. It's intrinsic to God. It's ontologically essential to God. Faith and hope, there's a lot of argument here in the, in the books and in the, in the scholars, may have some form in eternity, maybe. But the point Paul is making here is that faith and hope are not like love. They're not intrinsic to the very being and heart of God himself. Love is the greatest. Love is what was before anything was there. Love is what began the universe. Love is what created us. It is why we were created. It's what is our redemption is because of love. And it's what we were redeemed for. You see, love is the thread. Love is the story. Before there was anything, there was love. When all things, temporary and partial, pass away, there will be love. This is where theology comes into play. If God were not a trinity, if he was not a triune, tripersonal God, we couldn't say this. God would have needed to create other people, persons, to love. He would need us to love. But God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have loved each other as Jesus prayed before the foundation of the world, they, out of that that love, poured forth creation. That's where we come from. God created us. The universe exists so that God could display his love and draw us into this love. This is, according to Christianity, the thread that ties everything together, that has always been, that is now, and will always be. And we will, Paul says, be drawn into this, the heart of heart, of God in the universe, Paul says it's face-to-face. You know, face-to-face, what is he saying there? Face-to-face, that is 
probably the most intimate way he could describe us, being drawn into the very love of the Trinity itself. There was a, a friend of mine, she was a counselor, a therapist. We taught a marriage class together a number of years ago, and she has couples do this exercise. She calls it the prayer of intimacy. And what it is is you sit right knee to knee with your spouse, you hold hands, and your faces are only like this far apart. You look into each other's eyes and you pray for each other with your eyes open, face to face, thanking God for things about your spouse, asking forgiveness before God and praying a prayer of blessing. It's very powerful. It can feel weird and awkward and uncomfortable, but as you do it, face to face, there is an intimacy that happens. You don't do that with just anyone. You do that with those you want to be drawn into. Paul is saying face to face. When we are face to face with love, then in verse 12 he says, I will know fully as I am fully known. See how Paul makes it so personal? He switches there to the first person. He, he says, I, I will know fully as I am fully known. He can't help but put himself in there. A few ways to interpret this. What will we know fully? What will we know fully? God? Well, we will know God without anything standing in between us, our sin, our brokenness, anything else. So that's a possible interpretation. But at the same time, the, the scriptures say there's no way we can possibly exhaustively comprehend or know God in his holiness and in his greatness. We'll spend eternity knowing him. So I think that the sense here, the best sense is, no, not knowing God fully in the sense that we can't know everything about him, but knowing, fully knowing the way that we are loved by God with a never-ending love. In the full context there, I think this is saying we will fully know the never-ending love of God for us in Christ. Now we can see it partially, dimly. Then we will know face to face the God who loves us that way even now. He fully knows us and loves us. We won't fully grasp it until we're face to face with him. Face to face, we will know fully how Jesus bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things for us. Knowing everything about us, all the ways that we spurn his love, all the ways we walk away from his love, we will know his love never ended. It never fell down for us, not once. We will know that, God, how can you fully know me and want to be with me forever face to face? The Bible says no man can see God's face and live. Why? Because we are sinners. Because the face of God and his holy love would tear us apart, would destroy us in our sin. And yet the Bible also says, seek my face. Seek my face. It is in heaven when that contradiction is resolved forever and ever. When we see the beauty of how it can be that those who cannot gaze at the face of God, his holy face, are drawn in face to face in the love of God. I couldn't stop thinking about this verse in John chapter 13, verse 1 this week. 
which says this, uh, Before the Passover festival, right on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Only then will we fully comprehend and fully know the love of God shown to us in the cross of Christ. We try to sing it. We try to put it into words. What happened? We say in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, that the Father turned His face away from His Son. That the greatest act of love at the center of the universe was the Son who had always existed face to face with the love of God, experiencing what it's like to have that face turned away. This is the beauty. This is the beauty of love. There is no more beautiful case for love than that love, never ending, would go through the hardest thing, would suffer the deepest pain and pay the greatest cost to have the beloved to draw us in. This is the love of God that never ends. I knew I couldn't do it justice, but that, that is the beauty that compels us shows us love's heavenly work and that in the work we do now in loving others, we give other people a taste, a glimpse. It's imperfect. It's dim like through a mirror. But in our love, we can show them that kind of love that we have because of Christ. Final point, last point here, last point in the series. I said at the beginning of the series that I think this chapter should really start at the end of chapter 12 where it says, I will show you the most excellent way. That's a good topic sentence. And I think it should end, if I were to re-versify the Bible, with chapter 14, verse 1, where Paul says, pursue love. I've made my case. I've shown you logically. And I've tried to compel you with inadequate words by the beauty of love. The word pursue here is aggressively chase. It's actually used in the original language back then for a hunter pursuing a catch, his prize. Seek hard, chase. Don't stop until you get it. Pursue love. If you are a Christian, friends, a follower of Jesus Christ, then I know this. You are, right now, being called in some way to do the hard work of love. Because God loves you. He wants to do that holy work in and through you. So I know that about you. I don't know how or who he's calling you to love. But Paul says here, don't give up. Pursue it. Chase after the work God has given you to do. There are many good things we can and should pursue in this life. They change with different seasons of life. But Paul says, be always hunting, be always chasing after the greatest thing of all love. And so this is the conclusion in our series to start the year. May God use this chapter to set the course of our individual lives and the course of our life as a church. And here's the last thing I want to say. Here's the sign for the week. I've had a street sign each week for each of this, um, each portion of 1 Corinthians 13. And here's the sign. Pursue love. No stopping at any time.
I love the arrows. <laughs> this is a great sign to give us a picture of the love God has for you. There's no stopping at any time for any reason. The love of God for you, if your faith is in Jesus, there's no stopping it at any time for any reason. And this is the love he calls us to in this world, in this life. No stopping at any time. May God give you the grace and the strength to do that. Let's pray. Father, I pray our hearts would be convinced as we close this series that our hearts would be compelled that the greatest of all is love. This is holy work. This is hard work. Right now where we are struggling, where we're most empty and feel like we are just on the brink of giving up, I pray you would sustain us and strengthen us with this vision of your love for us in Jesus. That cannot be stopped. May that humble us knowing we don't even know everything about ourselves. We don't know exactly how hard it is to love us. We don't know the cost, the sacrifice, the pain that you have experienced to bring us, draw us into your love. May the beauty, may the beauty just break us so that we might be better at loving the people you put into our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.